This is Meditations for Misfits, and I'm Fred Gruy. In the book of Job, chapter 38, verses 1 to 7, it reads, Then God answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens my counsel? By words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Then in chapter 40 of Job, verses 3 to 6, Then Job answered God, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. And in Job 42, verses 5 to 6, Job says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, for any rational person, the book of Job's ending is far from satisfactory. If you've been following me for the last couple of podcasts, worse, this ending reads like some sort of sarcastic joke. Now, for four chapters, God assaults Job, the long-suffering and innocently tortured Job, with an onslaught of unanswerable questions like, what is the way to the place where lightning is dispersed? Or can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? And Job finally says, I'm sorry. Now this incredibly thin-skinned and capricious-sounding God blesses Job with ten more children, including three daughters, where it says they were the most beautiful women on the earth, and double the fortune that Job had lost way back in chapter 1 of the book. Now, is this answer supposed to satisfy us? Well, it does not satisfy me at all. But I think the point is, it seems to have satisfied Job. Mike Mason, in his wonderful book, The Gospel According to Job, suggests that God does give an answer. God's answer is God's self. Mason's observation highlights one of the great difficulties in the pursuit of any kind of a spiritual life. It's experiential. Simply reading the transcript of these last four chapters in Job seems awfully flat and two-dimensional. But we weren't there. We didn't experience what Job did. For him, it seems it was more than enough. Now, this is not to suggest that Job was irrational. It's just a different kind of rationale. Jung, Carl Gustav Jung, asserts agnosticism maintains that it does not possess any knowledge of God 
or of anything metaphysical, overlooking the fact that one never possesses a metaphysical belief, but rather is possessed by it. Both are possessed by reason, which represents the supreme arbiter who cannot be argued with, but who or what is this reason, and why should it be supreme? For me, Jung has hit the nail right on the head. A vital element of spirituality is its experiential nature. It possesses us. It chooses us. We don't choose it. And Jung further argues that it would be irrational to disregard such an experience. Just because we don't have the necessary scientific or empirical tools to quantify and measure such an experience does not invalidate it. Now, this is not to suggest that all spiritual experiences are great and trustworthy. I can remember one particularly crazy night working in the emergency department at St. Louis University Hospital in downtown St. Louis. We always had a lot of people come in who were victims of violence, drug, alcohol abuse, car wrecks, or mental illness. But on this one night, one of the attending doctors just stood up and screamed at nobody in particular. Why don't the little voices ever tell anyone to be a good dad or to get a job or to love your wife? His point was sometimes the little voices of experience can cause great harm. Now, as I mentioned earlier, a sense of, uh, on an earlier podcast, that is, a sense of isolation on our life journey or being alone in this great vast universe is a core existential issue that causes anxiety for many people. This is why spiritual experiences can be so powerful. They offer evidence that we're not really alone after all. Pentecostal theologian Gordon Fee identifies what makes spiritual experiences so soul-significant. He says they provide presence. Fee goes on to say, presence is a delicious word because it points to one of our truly great gifts. Nothing else can take the place of presence, not gifts, not telephone calls, not mementos, nothing. Ask the person who has lost a lifelong mate what they miss most. The answer is invariably presence. When we're ill, we don't need soothing words nearly as much as we need loved ones to be present. What makes shared life, games, walks, concerts, outings, a myriad of other things so pleasurable? Presence. Now, God has made us this way in God's own image because, because God, Fee says, is a personal, relational being. The spiritual experience of presence offers us not only fertile soil for meaning in our life, but a place to fit to belong. Presence is the wonderfully reassuring experience of not being alone. I love Dr. Fee's observation that God made us to be relational because God is relational. This echoes the famous insight of St. Augustine who cried out in his confessions, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Maybe we dread being alone because God 
dreads being alone? What if God enjoys experiencing us as much as we enjoy experiencing God? Once again, thanks so much for allowing me to join you on your journey through your world today. It really is uh, quite humbling that uh, you bother to download this podcast and take a listen. I deeply appreciate it. Well, to conclude this episode, I'm going to share with you one of my favorite quotes from my favorite writer, Thomas Merton. And Tom Merton says, God, my God, whom I meet in the darkness. With you, it's always the same thing, always the same question that nobody knows how to answer. <laughs>